Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me is someone that I've known for way too long now. And the reason I say that is because it means that we're fucking old. <laughs> um, over 10 years at this point. Yep. Um, Mr. Josh Florian, one of the smartest and most talented people I know. He's a drummer and an audio engineer by, I'll say at this point, by hobby, because the real what he really actually does is make magic boxes, meaning makes super high-end audio gear. And when I say super high-end, uh, let's just say that if a Ferrari is considered a high-end car, the McLaren would be what people who consider a Ferrari to be, you know, mass-produced would get. So I, so what Josh makes at his company, JCF Audio, would be more like the McLarens of the audio world. They're so high up there that even the guys getting apogees and things like that, which are considered very good, this is still way further up. And uh, he's built gear for me in the past, and you've heard his stuff on lots of my recordings and... Um, I've always been impressed by things that that he's remained adamant about, like never having too many things on a piece of gear because it'll interfere with the quality of the audio, like down to uh, lights and power switches and things that we've argued about in the past. But the thing is that when you talk to people who know about his gear or have used it, everybody just talks about it like it's the... Uh, I don't know, like like it's godly and magical, which uh, I agree with. So thanks for being here. Of course, man. Um, nice to talk to you again because I know we haven't talked in a little bit. Yeah, and uh, that's been a while. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, picking your brain because <laughs> I haven't picked your brain in a while. Yeah, well, it's a. Uh it's there for picking, and plus, I don't I don't have the mohawk anymore either. So like, it, it the brain's exposed. So, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> when did you get rid of the mohawk? Uh, about uh, maybe a year ago. I, you know, everybody has a spool of hair that they're given in life, and mine was a little bit shorter, so. It's sad. Yeah, it, it happens. I'm about to get rid of mine too. Yeah, it's. There comes a point where it, it don't work anymore, and it's, it's all good. I, I I told myself when I was very young, I had long hair for a long time. That when it when it would go, it's it's gonna go, and it's you know I'm, I'm not gonna try to save it. So. Yeah, my I'm I'm about to have to go through that too. Yeah. I've had long hair since I was 13, but it's one of those things where it's probably better to just get rid of it than to be that dude who doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I, it, that's what was right for me. The you know some people hold on past their prime, uh, let's say, and it, it I never looked never never was my thing. So. Well, I mean, I completely understand. It's like a hard thing sometimes for some people to, to like deal with. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
It just got to rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah, uh, the only thing you know, changes is part of life. If you don't, you can't change, you die. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> All right, well, hair care with uh, Josh and Al. This is way more important than <laughs> oh, the yeah. gear, man. Nice to have you here. So, ruining audio less. Yeah. That's the motto of your company, and I think it's interesting. I think it's funny and it's clever, but I also think it's interesting because one thing I always talk about is that every time you put a something in a signal chain, you're ruining the audio just a little bit more. Yeah. And so when you make the decision to use a plug-in or a piece of gear, mm-hmm. the benefit needs to outweigh the damage you're already doing. Sure. Um, and that's why a lot of... The really great mixers whose mixes I've gotten to see through doing this. One thing that I've noticed, which is almost uniform, is that they use as little. There, you typically their their chains are about as simple as it gets, or as simple as they can make them. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if your motto for the company has anything to do with that idea, or if you've got your whole own Josh explanation for it or if it was just a clever uh a mixture of things that i think somewhere along the way when i was in my uh my first intern gig at a studio in baltimore i think somebody had mentioned had said something sort of along the same lines not in in those exact words but it was like sucks less audio or something like that it may have been drew mazurek i don't know and um that the, the phrase just sort of always stuck with me and the the the, the feeling and the, the, the understanding of audio chains that I obtained sort of on top of that didn't happen till later. So the, the phrase sort of reappeared later on with different meaning, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's the, the way I've always approached audio and audio systems is that, it, you know, people say less is more or whatever. That's not exactly it. The, the way that I sort of explain it is that um, the best, everything is nothing. Um, which means that, you know, like, what's the best equalizer? The best equalizer is no equalizer. Um, if, if you if you have to put one in because you have a problem or something, you can solve it with one, but don't... It's it's sort of just a mantra, you know, to do not um, insert gear into a chain reflexively. Just, uh, you know, like, oh, this is supposed to be in here or whatever. Don't, you know, just sort of make decisions for yourself ahead of time until you listen. And does is that... Does that kind of mentality reflect in why your your pieces are so? I don't want to say simple because they do complex things, but simple in that they they do the thing they say they're going to do, yeah, and nothing and nothing else. Yeah. Like if you're if you're getting one of your units, it's going to do what it says what as advertised and yeah. incredibly well, but you're not always going to get even an LED with it. Yeah. I, yeah, the LED, I mean, I, I try to build things. I, I mean, the, the way that I build things is, in a lot of cases is very expensive. So I try not to um, clutter things too much. I mean, I have been accused of clutter in some cases. And it, I mean, it's, I think it's true in some cases. But you, you try to just not reflexively add things, even like features on boxes that people are just sort of expecting to see, like power switches. We've had conversations about that. I, I hate them because it's the the reason I don't have power switches on my boxes is just that something that's going to break, and I you know I don't I don't want to deal with somebody returning a piece of gear because the power switch, the, you know if they're just turning the thing on and off every day it's ridiculous, and in most cases um, 
it's kind of a punting operation too, where you you it, inserting a piece of gear into an audio system, it's almost certainly going to be plugged into a rack rider or a Furman or something that's got a power switch on it already, or it's going to be spending most of its time on anyway. So what what's the point? Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So I want to uh, I want to know what drove you to get started building stuff because yeah. I feel like. For instance, being a guitar player, there were always those types who were into building guitars or being like luthiers or whatever. Sure. And I never understood it. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, why would you want to do that when you could just be like me and play? Yeah. But they're like different, you know, they're different people wired differently. They have a passion for how the guitars are built. And I was always really happy that those guys existed because... I couldn't give a shit less about how a guitar is made, but right. if I needed it fixed, um, there you go. Yeah. And I guess I suppose I feel, and I've always felt the same about audio gear in that I'm not a gear guy, yeah. never have been. I mean, I like good gear because it helps you do good sounding stuff sometimes, mm-hmm. but I've never really cared. Like, I've never cared. And um, so it always fascinates me when someone does care <laughs> the way that you do I'm just want, were you always like that or was there something that triggered it I'm not really sure I think um, it, it, people have asked me this before I don't, I don't really know I, it, it's just a mixture of factors of, of things that I was doing at a time I mean I've always been a tinkerer since I was a kid like into computers and things and coding when I was a little bit older and then um, going through recording school and then um getting into mastering when I moved out here to LA and meeting certain people and certain techs and things that it's just sort of, and also opportunities that just sort of presented themselves when mastering lab in LA was going to open another facility in Ojai. There was a lot of gear that needed to be constructed. So that was a role that I sort of fell into. And, um, so there's, there's a mixture of opportunities and things that you're, you know, things that you sort of gravitate towards and uh, it was a mixture of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I play guitar too. So, you know, back when I'm 14 years old, I have a Strat or whatever, and I, you know, I really want to hear what this guitar sounds like with another pickup in it, or just something that comes off the top of your head like that. And it didn't scare me, and it didn't. Um, I didn't feel like it was going to be detracting from the time that I was spending with the instrument at all to sort of put the thing on the kitchen table and try another pickup in it. So, um, I, it's I, interesting that you say scare you because that would scare me. Yeah. To this day, <laughs> doing it myself scares me. So you just didn't even, it didn't even register as like, oh no, this is complicated or yeah. this is beyond me. You just did it. I don't think so. I I, I told the story recently to uh, to Nicole, who we both know who works for me. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, My father, when I was very young, when I was like five or six years old, I remember he used to bet me money that I couldn't disassemble one of my toys and reassemble it. So, oh, there we go. I, yeah, I, I think that. Um, when there I, we go. That's that's what I was looking for. <laughs> I, I I think when I told the story, Nicole said, "Then you know, it's, you probably never had any choice in life." I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, le- lesson to all you parents out there: train them young. Sure. Yeah. But get 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 money involved early on, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And make them uh, make them disassemble their toys. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I think maybe some of that's where it came from. Just the sort of, uh, you know, the macho uh, 
little like you know games like play fighting that you have with your dad when you're a kid you know that's maybe that's where it came from i have no idea my business partner joel wanasek who <laughs> uh is not on the podcast today obviously <laughs> but uh he uh he's training his daughter to understand that she's like i think like five or yeah. something she already knows the difference between a product and a service business and like <laughs> uh, what product market fit is and all these like wow dumb business terms that we use all the time um so that's a little much but hey whatever whatever works man but hey you know 20 years from now 30 years from now she could have a company and someone will be interviewing her about it she'll be like well my dad uh made me build all my toys from scratch okay so so from a young age you were you were building toys uh you were getting paid to build things that's kind of interesting yeah that's the long and short of it yeah so i I got forced into this and you know circumventing the child labor laws yes (laughs) that's hilarious um so by the time you were in high school Mm -hmm. uh were you super comfortable with it to the point of uh, doing it, I guess, semi-professionally for money, or were you just still hobbying? Like, where were you at by the time you were in high school? That was that was also hobby. I mean, it, it, that music and playing music was still the the main sort of focus of my life from all the way up until uh, basically when I started this company in two thousand four. So you're talking nineteen ninety two through nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I just playing music and. It just trying to you know any if I were going to modify anything that I own like my amp or guitar or, or change a piece of gear or whatever it was all sort of in the service of sounding better and, and playing better music at that time it didn't it wasn't uh, I, di- I didn't really have this as a career on my mind at that point and what made you switch from being music focused yeah. to to building stuff focused a couple of things um, you know, as you well know you know being in a being in a in a collective like a band or something, I mean, there's you're always dealing with uh, other people and other people's needs and priorities yes, and things. Yes, and, I do. Yes, I, I know that very well. Yeah, so there's 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 that that, that happens, and there's always a, a little, you know, after you go through a big experience like a tour or a career or whatever in that in that field, you always end up taking away some some negative things from it because it's just it's inevitable. Um, so there's there's some of that and. Um, I also, around the same time period, sort of saw um, where the engineering craft or the engineering being, the business of being an audio engineer was sort of changing and becoming something very different than it was prior to that. Um, Something that you didn't like, right? Yes, that's true. I I, I was an editor at Mastering Lab at the time, sitting in front of a sonic station, just you know, cutting together, like you're going to be cutting together this podcast. I'd just be doing that three or four records a day, every day. And now, I remember uh, you telling me, just sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I remember you telling me that you hate how it's become the equivalent of a video game. Yeah. I, yeah a, I hated the, the, the sort of aspect of, of recorded performances becoming like a video game. That bummed me out. I mean, I, I realized that, it, 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 you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because there are parts of uh, audio editing as it applies to other audio fields that does not bother me as much like you know people editing podcasts or people editing commercials or television or something i mean that i, I never had any like you know moral qualm with that 
then it just it, like music was something that was close to my heart and I really didn't like the feeling of it turning into like a, a game of Tetris that yeah. it just it like it just didn't it didn't excite me it doesn't interest me musically so there was that and I, I you know, so so you saw that that's the direction engineering was going yeah and were kind of like eh not for me yeah it just I I, I the other I mean the, the part that really turned me off of the whole thing was the fact that it was becoming commoditized. It was just like, you know, if I can do this, if I can sit down and do this, then you know, anybody can sit down and do this. And everybody started getting, you know, cheaper and cheaper computers. And then when GarageBand started shipping with the, you know, right with the operating system, it just, it became Wait, very like... So you saw, you saw this in 2004? No, well, I, I saw it coming long before that, actually, right after I had started a Master Lab around 2001. That, that things That's were sort kinda, of changing. Because these things that you're talking about um, I mean, I've been watching the change as well, and yeah, and of course, and been paying close attention. But they mm-hmm. didn't really start coming into full fruition until years after yeah. two thousand one. Yeah, no, I, I saw it coming. I knew where it yeah. was headed, and it just it, it it's it, I didn't you know I wasn't really disparaging of the whole thing. I recognized it was changing. It just it didn't it, it didn't click with me, and other things mm-hmm. clicked with me more. Fair but, enough. Yeah, so that's. I just yeah, I spent more time in the shop at the lab than I did uh, after a while than, than editing and burning discs. I just got, you know, that's just just what happened. So, well, I mean, just I think that it's mature to say it's changing and I'm not going to disparage it. It's just not for me. Yeah, but it's mature to be able to understand that. You know, you may not be able to control the direction the world is going in, mm-hmm. but you can certainly control. What focus you give to your life? Oh, certainly. There's a key distinctions to make. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I well, I say that because I see a lot of guys who don't like a certain direction, and it bums me out for them because it's like, dude, you can't fight a tsunami. Yeah. the The future will happen, and it'll happen whether you like it or not. So don't fight the future. Fight for your own focus. Yeah. In my opinion, so what? Well, okay, so it's it's certainly first. I mean, you you have to sort of be like at first be in control of your own life. If you decide to you know head up a a movement or something or get people on board or or make a collective, that's something that sort of has to come after. Like you got to be comfortable sailing your own ship first. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you weren't happy with the way engineering was going. What else was it that? uh, Um. Sorry for tangenting us. No, I do that. It, it's it, different things. I mean, the, the um, it being less about music and video, more about video games. That was part of it. Part of it was um, uh, the electronic side of it. Just sort of clicked with me. It was something I was always sort of technically oriented. So maybe getting out from in front of the gear and getting inside it is something that just it, it just sort of it was a natural gravitation. So it's a, a mixture of conscious effort and you know also just going with what feels good um i don't think there were and and obviously there are practical considerations like you know can i make money doing this how much is you know, these engineering gigs paying and bills and all that there's, there's lots of factors involved but those are big ones and okay and then so fast forward to 2004 mm-hmm. You started JCF Audio. I did. Yeah, right, right when I got back off tour. Yeah, I, I, that was you know I, I had gotten out of this band and come back to Los Angeles and uh, decided, hey, I want to I want to make a go of it as a as a I, I think I guess I, what the phrase I would have said in my own mind is I want to be a tech, you know. So I had um, some contacts from people that I knew from 
uh, clients who had worked at the lab or, or freelance or other people or whatever and, and just started sort of um, taking um, I had actually been building converters since since the end of college and since 1999 I had I had done a couple of different things for for me and a couple of other people so I decided hey you know converters is something that I like I enjoy I understand the technology I like um, I, I like playing with that kind of thing but in addition to that, um, on a on a strictly technical level, I saw that there were some open doors for me. Like there were some things that that could be improved upon that were really easy to improve upon. And always being sort of quality minded in that department, always you know, like I I always wanted to do a better job at this craft. I I thought I could do better, and I saw an open door and just wanted wanted to run for it. So that's eventually what sort of turned into the latte, the first product. Let's talk about converters a little bit. Yeah. Um, your converters are regarded among some of the very best out there. And I can say from my own experience, shooting them out against other things that they're incredible. Your stuff's incredible. <laughs> and uh, your gear was some of the gear that helped me understand the importance of good converters. So like yeah. right around that time was when I was first starting to really get it. Um, because I think that, you know, I think I was pretty serious about recording till about 2005. Then the band stunted my growth. <laughs> Not, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just shift of focus for a few years. Sure, and I got yeah. back into it around 2009, 2010. <laughs> and that, I didn't, I knew you for a few years and didn't even know you had a gear company. But I think around 2009, 2010, you started sending me pieces to try on recordings. And I bought some pieces off of you and, that was the first time that I really started to understand what a major difference these pieces of gear make and why they're so expensive and why mm -hmm. your your stuff that you recorded on an M-Box sounded poopy compared to yeah. stuff you recorded on something much higher end, yeah. conversion-wise. And I know some people who out there who have a following who are pretty smart, who put a lot of effort trying to get the point across that converters make no difference. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about that. Have you ever seen any of these videos where they'll be like, the converters in my Hewlett Packard <laughs> yeah. PC or whatever are the same as like this ultra expensive converter. Mm -hmm. There's no difference. It's all snake oil. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a, a mixture of things going on there. I mean, um, somebody taking a video and identifying that you know, one chipset is used in some product is the same in some other product that costs way less money. Um, that that doesn't make the, the two products the equal or the same thing or or performing in the same environment the same way. I mean, they just, just sort of comparing two different things. They happen to have two pieces in it that are the same. Um, while it is true that there is a uh, sort of um, de facto... Uh, family of conversion product that is ubiquitous and in, in gear that's meant for audio that does not mean that all of the products are the same or they do the same job or they do it the same way or, or for the same purposes even that there's, um, there's there's a lot of difference involved so what do I what do I think about people trying to demonstrate that it's that, that they are the same thing I well I they're trying know. to say that like the uh you know, no offense to people that to brands that make budget gear. Yeah, there's a time and a place for that stuff, especially if you're a beginner. Sure, a beginner is not gonna spend five grand on two channels of conversion or whatever. Mm. Like, and there's no, no. they shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But they're trying to say that uh, that companies trying to sell you super expensive conversion are just trying to rip you off. You can just get lower line stuff and it'll be exactly the same. Yeah. And that's not the stuff you should be paying attention to. You should be paying attention to everything else yeah. in the signal chain. And I agree with the last part, which is you should be paying attention to everything else in the signal chain anyways. But well, well yeah, that's yeah, that's, exactly. That's it's like, what, duh. Yeah. Yeah. The assertion that, uh, that all companies that make expensive conversion products are trying to rip you off is a little bit of a stretch. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, my stuff is very expensive and I can guarantee you, I'm not trying to rip anybody off. It, it is expensive. And, you know, people who, look at my product on the shelf or something and identify it as something that's not for them. They, they, you know, they're not required to buy it. I'm, I'm not, by putting it in front of them, I'm not saying that they, they are, you know, like they have to part with their money. There are situations where, where things are overpriced and, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's more sensible to purchase something that, that's more affordable and they may happen to have the same same modulator in there or something. You know, I, don't, I don't know. I can't come up with any specific uh, examples off the top of my head, but a blanket statement like converter companies are ripping you off is just that the statement doesn't hold water. And that all conversion is the same. No, it's, it isn't by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there are a lot of similarities between uh, a, a lot of mainstream products. Um, there's a, a family conversion called uh, Sigma Delta, which is a, is, or Delta Sigma, depending on the way you think about it in your head, but it's a technology that exists um, that is very cheap and easy to manufacture, and it's why it's ubiquitous in uh, in audio. So audio in the in the conversion world sometimes get gets the little um, we're like the little the, the industry is sort of patting us on the head, going, "Oh, you guys want your twenty four bit performance? Isn't that cute?" <laughs> uh, we we get a lot of that from the technical end, but uh, yeah, there are certain things that are used. Um, that are that are pervasive in products for audio, um, so that sort of it's like a glue that sort of ties them all together, and some people sort of latch onto that and go, "No, these things are all the same." That's you know, it's just not true. All right. Well, then, what what are if if you've got some elements that are the same, yeah. then what are the elements that make them different? Well, everything everything else except for like a you know auto modulator and digital digital filter on a chip. I mean, there's everything else that's involved. Um, even ludicrous stuff that that seems innocuous like like chassis like you know what kind of box is it in um power supplies interface jacks switches relays i mean the component you can name every component under the sun and the way it's all put together um there are you know really really poorly made really expensive products and they're really wonderfully made cheap products and everything in between and i guess uh do you find that every single one of these items that you would put inside a box makes a difference, right? Um, I, I wouldn't say that every single one makes a difference in a in a demonstrable, measurable context. I don't. I, I think that that's a bit of a stretch too. Um, okay. But uh, topologically speaking, so for me, the way that the pieces are sort of integrated together, um, and it, it, there there are some components that are hypercritical um, in, in some cases, and sometimes those components don't exist in other designs at all. So it's very, you know, the, the speaking about this stuff in generality starts to break down the more focused you, you get on any one given area. You can't really make blanket statements about anything. So it's, it's kind of like an onion, you know, you can't really get to the center of anything. Yeah, I hear you on that. I, 
I, I guess I'm pushing for mm-hmm. as dorky and specific as you want to get. Yeah. The we will we would love to hear about it. Sure, I, I'll give you um, like I'll just sing. Let's pick out just one thing as an example that people are okay. probably familiar with, like power supplies or something. Okay, so power supplies is a is a big one for me. Um, the most common thing that exists in in audio gear today for a variety of reasons is a thing called a switching power supply, which is basically just um, there's a, a small little DC power supply that converts power that comes in from the wall, which is of course AC, into DC, and then there's a high frequency sort of oscillator circuit that uh, takes this power and transfers energy across a very very small transformer core, and it's allowed to be very very small and lightweight and cheap because it's doing it at a very high frequency, and that that energy is rectified and turned into DC and then used to power loads on the other side. Uh, that's that's the way a switching power supplies works. These things are manufactured in China almost exclusively, um, although in a couple of other countries too. That, but they're made in China by the zillions at a time. You can buy them right off the shelf. They're cheap, they're shitty, but they're, um, well, let's just say, they're, they're, they're cheap, they're ubiquitous. They are, uh, in some cases, come with, uh, this is difficult to explain, but it, if you build a product with it, it sort of sets up your procedure for getting the box certified a little bit easier. Got it. Um, okay. And that's why it's uh, ubiquitous, basically, because it, well, it just makes your life easier. It's ubiquitous for a couple of reasons. One, they're lightweight. Two, they're cheap. Uh, they're easy to make low profile, so you can build smaller boxes and things. It's all about efficiency from a cost and weight standpoint more than anything else. Um, and and also uh, if efficiency of the finished product, meaning it doesn't generate a lot of excess heat. Um, mm-hmm. And this entire family of, of uh, a power supply is something that I have completely disregard. I, I don't think that they're... Uh, they're really worthy of of <laughs> it, it's, get, it's a little complicated. There are situations where switchers make sense, but I, I just don't think it's really worth the effort um, to have something that has a lot of uh, differential noise, which means that you can have noise across the voltage that's generated, and also the where it's a really shitty performer is what's called common mode noise, where the the whole power supply makes noise this way with respect to ground. So. Um, they, they're poor performers in a couple of different departments, and I'm not. Uh, it's just not something that I need to do. If I need to charge somebody, you know, a hundred extra dollars or something to have a linear power supply, then I'm going to do it, and it's going to weigh a little bit more, and it's going to cost a little bit more. It's just a, a bridge that I'm not really willing to walk over for a low power device. Makes sense. Yeah. So is that nerdy enough for you? <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, even though, like, uh, even though I feel like um i might not understand everything there is to understand about this stuff mm-hmm. uh, i love hearing about it and i love that's why i want to talk to you about it because yeah. why you know i'm not i'm not when i get asked these questions i'm like uh well i know there's a difference between converters because i've heard the difference sure and but then i get hit with the argument of yeah but that's subjective bro that's subjective. It's like, okay, fair enough. I don't know how I can argue with that. Yeah. But I just know that I've heard the difference, and guys I know who make records that sell a ton <laughs> can hear the difference. And while it's subjective, everyone's hearing is their own thing, I would much rather listen to the opinions of guys who know how to 
manipulate sound in the real world mm-hmm. than guys who are just trying to debunk something on YouTube. Sure, yeah, that, that's yeah, that sort of family of, of people who are into that kind of thing. I mean, it's yeah, I, I don't, I don't really get it either. Uh, you know, I, I agree that people's um, hearing is subjective. It's true, but you know, what's really fascinating and one of the really important things that I learned at Mastering Lab is that people's hearing is far less subjective than you think, and w- what people run across uh, sort of inadvertently is is the false notion that like uh, you know this I inserted this piece of gear in my chain and I listened to it and I got X opinion about it, and that means that that opinion is attached to this piece of gear and I take it out of this room and go plug it into this studio somewhere else under completely different circumstances. And you, you're immediately in a mindset, well, well, it must be the same thing. I, I must be getting the same thing. And so you, you're immediately attributing your feeling or your opinion about this piece of gear to the gear itself rather than its systems integration. Mm-hmm. It, it only exists un, under you know, this circumstance in this rack with this stuff. And uh, it, oh, this bo- you know, like this box was humming really badly, but except it's in a plastic enclosure right next to a power transformer, and that's why it was humming. And you take it out of there and plug it in somewhere else, and you don't have that problem. Well, the device isn't humming anymore, so whose problem was it? It's not really the, the fault of the gear. It's just a, a situation with the system that doesn't work. So. Yeah, very yeah. true. Uh, so back to talking about your personal history, mm-hmm. there came a point where you started making custom rigs for some pretty intense characters like Paul Reed Smith, for instance. Um, And uh, at first I thought it was a secret, but then a bunch of people know that you do it. Mm -hmm. So um, that, you know, I, I can think of so many times that you're like, I'm going to Maryland to build him a board yeah. or to rewire his whole room. Right. And those of us who, I mean, I don't really know him personally. I've met him a few times, but I know a lot of people that know him. Yeah. And he's a pretty intense genius, intense, intense character. Yeah. Um, and he loves working with you. And I know of a few other people like that who just, they go to you for this kind of stuff and mm-hmm. how did that start happening like how did you start becoming the go-to guy for the uh yeah. insane genius dudes well who make a ton of money <laughs> um it, it's always nice to work for a client that ha- is passionate about something i mean with with paul um as far as pro audio is concerned when i started working with him he didn't really know a whole lot about how pro audio gear works or whatever he was mainly a guitar guy and um, sort of casual vintage gear collector, but he didn't, you know, he, it wasn't really his wheelhouse. So um, I just started doing uh, certain things for him. He needed his studio rewired and he needed a bunch of gear built. And he, he, I would talk to him about certain things and he would say, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So he's been a good client and that, that's, that's all well and good. Um, but more specifically, like, you know, how did, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how I became the go-to guy for, uh, for certain custom projects and things, but I, it's something that I really enjoy doing because it, it really grows out of understanding the history of these companies, where they come from, the characters and the people that were involved, and looking at the um, the, the thought process that goes into to certain lines of equipment. And you, a lot of the stuff you can decipher by reading schematics more than anything else. I mean, you can you can see 
you know, like if there's an example of like a, a piece of gear that was built by one guy that worked for this company and then he ended up leaving that company and going to another company and you see some of the same things appear in this other product for another company and the, the layperson would get kind of confused by that and be like, well, well, these are two different companies. It must be different people or whatever. You know, the, this business is pretty small and there are key figures and you go back, there's, you know, maybe under 50 people or something who are really responsible for generating all of this you know, equipment that anybody that's an, an audio engineering would know about, like you say LA-2A or 1176 or something. I mean, the, the, you know, that, those, that's something that every audio guy kn knows what that is, but there, there was basically one or two people involved in generating it in the first case. So, I, you know, knowing the history and, uh, and, and then the people are interested in things. Oh, I, I really want an LA-2A, but I really wish that um, it had more output headroom or something like that. So I'll do... A, a variant of it, taking taking the ideas from the past and sort of bringing it into a modern context. That's something I enjoy doing. I, I, it's fun because it's it, it's sort of part artistry and part science, and it's, it tickles all the fun parts of my brain, I guess. Well, can you talk about some of the custom jobs you've done? Sure. Like maybe for Paul Reed Smith Perform. or anybody? Yeah. I just think that you've done some... Yeah. I've heard about some interesting stuff you've done for him. Yeah, um, the... Well, for for Paul, the you know I I, I built a lot of stuff. I be, we did some monitor controller stuff and a, and a D to A system and A to Ds and modified a lot of his preamps and um, what else did we do? I, we did so many things I can't even remember. He had a whole fleet of microphones that needed to be set up and powered correctly and you know, all the stuff that would have been done um, sort of reflexively back in the in the days of large. Uh, full service facilities being everywhere, especially here in Los Angeles. There, there's a lot of, um, you know, th those places used to have staff techs and people mm -hmm. that would have uh, sort of coherent, consistent theories about interconnect and were allowed to draw lines around and, and put fences around their own studio and saying when something comes in and is going to go into our studio and it's going to get used, it's going to get wired and, and treated a certain way so that it plays nice with everything else. That's something that was done reflexively, say, in 1975, and it's something that people don't even know existed today. Yeah, I honestly didn't even know that existed. Yeah, that, that's... Well, I mean, even even gear itself, I mean, like, in the, in the very, very early days of audio recording equipment, you had engineers, guys that would be responsible for generating the recordings, and they would come to technical people and be like, we need to do... A, B, C, and D, and we don't have gear to do that. So it becomes purpose-built. You say, build me a piece of gear that's going to solve my problems, A, B, C, and D. And that's where all these you know, equipment that everybody, you know, like LA-2As and LM76s and all the old UA stuff, that, that's where all this stuff grew out of, solving problems for people sort of on the fly. Interesting. So you, in lots of ways, are continuing that tradition in your own way. A little bit, yeah. I, I like to think I am. I, I, you know, varying degrees of success with it. Well, I mean, I think that whether we like it or not, the days of the old studio are gone, they, with very with very few exceptions. So largely, it's yeah. gonna it's gonna. There's a few holdouts, but you know who says they'll be here in ten years? But one thing that will be here in ten years is guys who have the passion for it and the money to make it happen who will hire people like you to do it for them. Yes. I think so I think that that will still be here without a doubt. There will be the Paul Reed Smiths of the world who want the best of the best in their own studio yeah. and they'll pay to make it happen. Yeah, it's you know and like you mentioned earlier in your when you were explaining me and the, like you know my 
perception, the, the way I'm perceived by other engineers and guys in the business like you. I mean, t- to me, when I do this stuff, I, I don't see, there's not an enormous amount of gray area and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. It's not, it's, it's not just like a, a, a wide palette, like you can do anything. There's things that make sense and things that don't make sense. And it's, there's a pretty clear line between them. So that me taking that sort of attitude got interpreted as like, I only build stuff for elites or it, it's like, you know, elitist or it's only, it's only really expensive, really high end stuff. That That's all stuff that got generated by things that got said about me. When, when I build a piece of gear for somebody, I'm just trying to do a really good job with it. And it's, it's, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like an SM57 is a, is a, it's a, a, like an amazing piece of engineering, but I don't think anybody would call that like an elite microphone or something. You know, it's just it's just a smart, sensible piece of gear. Mm-hmm. So there will always be people who are interested in having things sound good and having systems that integrate uh, well. That it, it's um, it, it's something that still pays the bills for me. So like I, I enjoy enjoy making audio systems that work for people. Yeah, uh, it's interesting about the SM57 and pieces of gear like that, mm-hmm. where maybe it's not considered a piece of elite gear, but I can't think of a single elite studio mm-hmm. that doesn't have at least like eight of those. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's interesting that it's one of those. There are those pieces of gear that you know they might not have the highest fidelity, but for some reason. They are just the workhorse that everybody agrees on. Yeah. Doesn't matter the genre, doesn't matter the budget levels, doesn't matter. Like everyone just agrees this is the standard or the workhorse for this type of thing, and we will all own it. Yeah. You know, in the case of the SM57, it's something I actually don't know a whole lot about the history of. I just something I could come up with off the top of my head. I mean, maybe they had a very, very successful marketing ca- campaign. The, the, the SM57 was, re- was re-released, I think, at least three times. Why it is that they're, they're everywhere, I mean, they're affordable. They do their job. They, they're also very robust, meaning you can drop them on the floor five or six times and they will still function correctly. The, you know, the case being that, that, that whatever that strange steel material is. Um, I, you know, they, it, gear catches on for different reasons um, in, in different circles for different things, and uh, I, it, it's all a bit of a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there there is an element to it, kind of like why does a piece of music yeah. catch on? There is definitely uh, with music. There's the you know, no matter what you put into it, marketing or production wise, there's always got to be that timing thing where yeah, sure. the collective consciousness of the audience needs to be Prepared. ready for it yeah. and wanting for it and yep. that you can't predict that and i mean you can't that's the i mean yeah. nirvana was a big one there that was the weirdest yeah. thing in the world because i mean that like that you know seventh grade that's like i can remember i remember the summer that that record came out and right. retrospectively thinking about it now and the feelings and that all of my friends and all the people that were into it at the time it like the, it was just the situation was as such that the world was primed for that kind of thing, and they did it, and, and that's what happened. It was just you know something that just sort of happened. I I think I was around that age too, and it's hard to explain to people that weren't there, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But it, I wasn't allowed to listen to rock or metal or anything like that by my parents growing up. Mm-hmm. I always had to sneak it, and. Before Nirvana, really, 
I had no interest because it was mainly like this glam 80s shit yeah. that was big. And like I would, whenever I would come across it, like at a friend's house or whatever, I'd be like, what? I don't, they're all dressed like girls and yeah. I don't know. It just didn't speak to me. And then Nirvana happened and it was like, yes, this is, this is just right. Yeah. Um, it just, that, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. There wasn't any greater, there wasn't any greater thinking to it. It was just, this is right. Yeah. This felt right at the time. This spoke to me and my friends. And I, I seriously doubt that Kurt Cobain had marketing meetings about that. No. He was just doing his thing. Yeah, you no. can't, no, Ponum, you can't predict it, that. I, yeah, the Sub Pop and the DGC guys, they, I, there may have been some planning involved in there, but I, I don't, you know, I have no idea. Maybe some planning on how they would release a record, but I really don't think they plan to change the face of popular music forever. No, I mean, no, and nobody to, plans to do that. Yeah. <laughs> guess yeah, I, exactly. I guess not. But I think that, you know, back to the SM57 convo, I think that for a piece of gear to be that popular for that many decades in a row yeah. across so many, this is pretty impressive. It is very impressive. I can't. I can't really think of another piece of gear that's like that. That pervasive. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the SM58. <laughs> all right. Sure. <laughs> For live use. Right. Though I do know a lot of studio guys that that have those. Um, so, another question about. Uh, when you're doing custom projects, mm-hmm. it. Does that feel different to you than when you're making gear for JCF? Yeah. Or, okay, so it's a whole, is it like another business? No. Or is it like, how Like how do you categorize that in your head? Well, it's, it's just a, a different thing. I mean, I have a line of products of stuff that we manufacture and sell, and then um, on a, uh, a more custom basis, if somebody needs something specific or, or you know, mostly JCF is focused on conversion products for the most part. There's a little bit of leeway in there too, but uh, the stuff I do on, on a custom basis for people can be anything. Anything is ridiculous. I mean, I just finished a, a custom project that was a 16-channel switcher box for live playback. Um, you know, people have these you know, rigs that they do you know, playback stuff for, for you know, live tours and so forth, and they have a redundant rig that they need to have switch over when uh, when one of the machines locks up or drops out or something. So I, I just did a, a high speed switcher box for for that kind of situation. That's something that you know like would never really make sense as a product for JCF Audio. I mean, I don't think there's really enough call for it, but it's something that's fun to do on a custom basis. Something that's a little bit outside the norm and you know unusual. And do you like the interaction with high powered minds that want? stuff that's off the menu do i like well i like Like, i I like working for for any body who has um needs that are not met that are uh, sort of within reason uh you know i don't want to build the homer you know the the car with 15 horns or something that's kind of ridiculous but (laughs) i I like it when people approach me like uh, you know that i like working professionals that approach me like i need something that does this and I can't believe that it doesn't exist in the marketplace. And it's, can you build me something that will solve my problem? And I, I and I'm able to say yes. I, that's that's something I enjoy. Yeah. Well, I don't. If it's that big of a deal that it solves a problem that's on the marketplace, why don't you then just turn it into a product? Because the it, just because somebody one person has a specific need for a specific piece of gear, Got it. 
doesn't necessarily translate into a product. That's you know there needs to be enough uh, call for it for it to make sense because the tool up to do a product is very very expensive. You have everything from you know promotion and and getting all the pricing information together to manufacturing and you know it's a, it's a it's a big production to make a product. All right, so let's talk about one of your products, one that I've owned and that is incredible. So DA8. It's a high-quality 8-channel DDA converter, um, super high-quality, and it's got something that you made a proprietary process called PEP. And I remember when you first introduced me to PEP was in a hotel room, mm. and you couldn't really describe what it was. But I had some but, I had some DOS program material, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. That and Muse and some other things. Yeah. And you said, listen try to clap along <laughs> when it's on and when it's off. Yeah. That and it when it was on, it kinda I don't know how to explain it. Everything just felt better. And so that's why I bought it. And I started processing mixes through it and sometimes tracks through it. Yeah. And I'd say that maybe nine times out of ten, it worked. One times out of ten, it made things sound worse. But that's okay. That's any piece of gear. Yeah. But nine times out of ten, it made stuff sound, just not just sound, but like feel better. Yeah. But I don't know how to explain it. And Well, that, that's the whole thing. Like with, with, with PEP specifically, for starters, you're, you're talking about the AD8, the, the HTML A to D converter. The, the new product, yeah. the DA8T, actually has a slot for, for Peppa. It doesn't ship oh, with it. Oh, you're right. Yeah. AD, sorry, I own the AD8. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, with Pep, the whole thing was if you, you know, like the, the, I had to figure out some way to convince uh, the people who were, who were in that demonstration to be able to, to sort of feel the music rather than sort of, um, you know, any, anytime you corner an engineer and you say, you know, listen to this or whatever, they immediately have their engineering ears on. And they're they're not listening to instruments or performances or anything. They're just picking. Oh, you know, how's the top end? Is it extended? And if you if you're immediately in that mindset, it's already over. So that that's why the clapping thing. I was trying to get people to listen to music rather than to to you know, try to listen to what equalizer somebody used or something. Um. So yeah, the 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 whole experience of having, um, everything sort of feel like it's in the right place. Yeah. So this is a basically a an algorithm and you switch it on mm -hmm. when you're doing the conversion and stuff just kind of feels better but yeah can you talk about it a little bit because i remember you tried explaining it to me a few times and it just shot right over my head yeah and maybe now that i'm a little older i'm a little smarter <laughs> and can try to understand it but like what is it well that's you know i it's uh i i get kind of tongue-tied explaining it to people too i mean i could um I could I could explain it to you exactly what it is, but I end up sort of uh, forfeiting too much of the intellectual property of my company, so I can't do that in a lot of cases. And I'm always playing tap dance when I explain this to people. Um, but it, it's it's worth a listen, you know. If you if you hear it, that's the experience. Trying to you know you can't even describe it yourself, so I, I don't think I'd do much better. Um, I I can talk a little bit about you know why I chose to put it in an A to D okay. converter and and why it's there. Um, well, yeah, how about that? And what's the point of it? I, I think that um, this thing that sort of gets fixed with the process is something that uh, engineers spend a lot of time sort of tripping over. Um, if you, it's why I wanted it early in the recording process. 
and you could liken in a very sort of general abstract way to the recording on a on a multi-track tape machine. I think that um, doing that, I don't want to say it solves everybody's problems, but it 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 sort of sets you up to uh, spend less time tripping over sonic dilemmas further down the recording process. Um, it, it sort of helps you out ahead of time, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's why it, it, it exists in the you know the, the, if say it's, it's this magic cure all. It's just to say that it's a magic cure all for for sound, right? If you call it that, well, obviously you want it early in the, in the chain so that you can make your decisions about what you're going to be doing to shape and manipulate the sound based on what you're hearing. I mean, that's all you have to work with when you're mixing or listening to laybacks or whatever. You're you're making decisions and acting based upon what you're hearing because that's what you have to work with. So it, it, what what came in off the floor, you know, what, what went into the tape machine is of little consequence because nobody's ever going to hear that again. It's what comes off of it that's important. So uh, going, using that as a cheap model or whatever, um, I, that's why it exists early in the recording process and why... Um, Applying it later is sometimes uh, a situation that can get you, you find that you're having to make more compensations and more adjustments as a result of it being there, which is a little bit unfortunate. Well, back to what we were saying at the beginning about how some of the best mixers have the simplest of chains. And, uh, you know, also the whole other thing about how we always talk to people about get it right at the source, get it right at the source. But, um, you know, if you actually do get it right at the source and have everything come in the right way, then you do have to make less decisions later. Oh, you do. Which will lead to better, hopefully better sounding mixes and masters. And I did notice that when I tracked through it with it on, the level of fixing that I had to do afterwards... Much lower. ...was much lower. Yeah, which is... It's, and see, it's really... It's sneaky because it's it's like a phantom. You can't... It's very difficult to sell that to people. Be like, look at all this time that you would have spent doing this had you not done this. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, you're basically, it, it becomes very vaporous, you know. But it is real. It's, it's absolutely real. If it, the less time that you spend and the less problems that you have to solve, the better off your situation's going to be. And I don't, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, it's again though. It's I think it's one of those things where someone would just need to try it out over yeah. a. a lo- it's hard to it's hard to sell people on something that would be part of a project that would span weeks, right? So you're this process that you would be doing at the very beginning mm-hmm. is going to save you time over cumulative over the period of weeks yes. and maybe months. And that's what's great about it. But here, uh, so buy it off of this, and we promise. And then you, by the time you get done with that project, probably the time to ha- return the product to wherever you buy it from <laughs> has expired, right? So it's kind of a, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. Yeah. Um, but I, I can I can definitely say that that it's been that it, it just does something incredible to yeah. the audio. Yeah, and, and I also tell people, like, as far as their engineering ears are concerned, when it gets applied, in some cases, um, it actually ends up sounding not as good, and that's that, that's something that's sort of part of part and parcel with the product. It, it's it, like if you know, on off, if you have your engineering ears on, and in a lot of cases, it's not going to win the on off contest with your engineering ears on. But the 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 part that's 
that's really cool about this situation is that if you if it's applied in the recording process, it, it at the point in the recording process that's suggested by the product, meaning up front, you have at your disposal probably, you know, if you have a workstation and plugins, infinite numbers of tools at your disposal to fix all of the problems, the small problems that it may introduce. You do not have any tools to fix the problems that it does solve. Can you talk about some of the problems that it solves? Um, well, that's that's what we were, the, the previous conversation that we just had, all, all the, the sort of je ne sais quoi about it is that you don't have, a, there isn't anything else that does that. It, it, it's just that, and if it ends up sounding a little woolly in the low mid-range or something, you know what? You've got a, a bank of probably 40 equalizers in front of you that you can dial a little bit of low mid-range out, but you're not going to be able to get get, get that with anything else. True. Yeah. Have, have you um, have you ever had anyone actually figure out what it is? No. Uh, n- not that it has told me, no. Okay, so to date, no one's been like, I think I know what you're doing. Yeah in pep and here it is and you've been like fuck you figured it out no I, in fact i dare people to figure it out in the manual it's something that's unavoidable it, it's it doesn't really much matter if, if people figure it out or whatever i'm not going to give it to them but um it, it you know, the way that it's integrated is pretty special and it's also the way that it's packaged in in that device or whatever no, nobody's going to you know it, it doesn't bother me at all <laughs> I was just curious because I, I remember that when I had it, it back in Florida, a lot of people would be like, okay, I bet it's doing this. And I'd hit you up mm-hmm. and you'd be like, nope, that's not what it's doing. It'd be like, it's a transient shaper. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, it, nah. it, it, it can shape transients, but no, it's not. That's not it's not like a you know transient designer or something. No, it's, that, that is not how it works. <laughs> So that that's kind of um, it is kind. Of, do people still react to it the same way? Yes, especially. I mean, under demo circumstances, yeah. Um, all the people that have bought the product, are, I I haven't received any negative feedback from it. I'm sure that there is. That's so. Um, those of you guys listening, are you going to be at Nam uh, in January? I think so. We haven't uh, made final decision yet, but I'm hoping to go this year. I try to do it. You know. At least twice a decade or something. <laughs> so we, okay. we were last if there you, in 14. We want to do it again. If you find JCF Audio at NAMM, mm-hmm. uh, get a pep demonstration. Highly recommended. I know a lot of you guys listening will be there. Go to the JCF booth and ask them to show you pep. Um, yeah, just do it. Now, what's your opinion on... I feel like three years ago, this trend started happening of guys getting kits to build gear. Sure. The DIY trend started. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's kind of tapered off a little bit. but I, I think it has a little. It, it, a, li- yeah. a little. Yeah. Do um, you guys realize that it's harder than they thought? Um, there's probably a little bit of that. Uh, I, You know, the, the DIY sort of scene, at least in the audio world, has been sort of uh, sort of under the radar, but it's been around really since about 1990. I mean, since the beginning of the internet, really, but I mean, really in some meaningful way, probably 1999 or 2000. Um, and, and continuing up to present day. And it got very popular there for a minute. And um, it, it's been met with varied success, I'd say. Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, I know it's always been there, but I think that like there about two years ago was when every single person who has never even touched a piece of gear in their life right. maybe suddenly wants to get a 
a uh, a lunchbox and start building their own 500 series units. Sure, yeah. Um, and some guys started selling units like that, and I bought a couple, and they'd be like the worst made pieces of shit I've ever gotten in my life. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of, but I do know that some guys really found their calling that way too. Sure. Um, they didn't realize, like, they were afraid of making gear, and they found these DIY kits and realized maybe it's not as tough as I thought. Maybe mm-hmm. it is tough, but it it's not like uh, it's not like um, this totally mystical thing. Like I can actually do this. Sure. Yeah. Maybe within a year or two, I'll be decent or something. Mm-hmm. And I know that some of them actually really got a lot out of it. Um, but what are your thoughts on that movement? On DIY. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, in a, a certain sense, am sort of a child of DIY in, yeah. in, in many different respects. So I can't really knock it too badly. Um, if, if people learn from it and, and get something out of it, then yeah, I mean, I'm full, all for it. I, I will say that, um, you know, if you're going to make a, a box or you're going to make a product and give it to somebody else or sell it to somebody else or whatever, you need to sort of make, there's a bar that needs to you know you need to get over the bar in order to make that happen um and yeah there are some things out there that have sort of grown out of that world that are a little bit you know questionable but um if if you get something out of it that that's positive then it's a good thing i mean i i I would never be somebody to sort of uh poo-poo the um the amateur world or whatever i don't you know it's just not something i'm about but um you know like if you're going to make a product and sell it to somebody at least that you, you, you know, there is, I guess I have some shame involved. You know, I'm not going to sell somebody some complete piece of crap. Well, I think that some people thought that it was going to, like, become so big that it was going to torpedo a bunch of... No. Yeah, I, I never saw it that way because to get good enough to make gear that competes with the big boys... You're not going to just figure that out based off some DIY kit. No, you you could. I mean, you might be able to get away with making a bunch of, you know, like a whole slew of utility preamps to do, you know, whatever to record a drum set with or something. Yeah, can you accomplish that? Yeah, probably so. With maybe some help or maybe a little bit of experience. Yeah, you can get that done. Um, is it going to you know torpedo API or something? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not something that they're worried about. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it, in fact, they were actually pushing it. A lot of the the DIY 500 series came from API themselves. They wanted to sell racks, so that's why the the, the 500 uh, uh, the VPR alliance sort of sprung up. There were a lot of companies who were manufacturing things for that format, and they wanted a little bit of oversight and and regulation over the community, so that people were not returning their racks saying that they had blown up because somebody decided to stick eight modules in that were all shorted out or something, you know. Interesting. That, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mm-hmm. I don't know. I've always figured that it would be smart to figure out how to get behind that community yeah. rather than fight it. it. One of those things of you can't fight the future, mm-hmm. and also, um, like you said, you don't want your to get your stuff returned because people are blowing it up. Yeah, they so, they, they didn't. So. Yeah, like building. Um, one of the things that was exciting about 500 when it started to get really popular was the fact that um, you didn't have to have you didn't if you were going to make a product that was a 500 series device you didn't have to go through any UL or CE certification procedures because you're not selling anything with that connects to the wall for power you're just selling mm-hmm. a card with 
you know, that somebody puts DC on. So um, the large companies like API or, or you know, um, whoever else, I can't think of the other companies that make 500 series racks like um, Pete Montesi's company, A-Designs. Um, it, Vintech it, does, yeah, lots it, of people do. Sure, um, I just couldn't think of one. Um, so all, all the companies that are a little bit larger that are would be willing to make open racks for that kind of thing that can go through the certification procedures and they, they you know you don't have to worry about that so hey just put the important stuff in and don't worry about power mm-hmm. yeah i i wonder if people are still buying 500 stuff in with the fervor they were a few years ago i haven't heard of it quite as much i, I don't think so I, it's cooled off a great deal and a lot of people have sort of turned on it saying that like you know the 500 format is no good or whatever I, and i started started to roll my eyes at that whole thing too i mean like oh, they, I, heard, I heard that too people i i don't know why what was that all about i have no idea i, I mean it, it doesn't make any sense the, the 500 format is pretty spectacular it, it, it yeah there's lots of things that it can't do but for simple you know, bipolar, regular, uh, you know, 16 volt stuff that you do with uh, discrete op amps or monolithic op amps or whatever. I mean, if, if the sort of building block stuff, you can do a lot of stuff in that format, and it's it's a wonderful arrangement. I don't I don't know I don't understand how it got got a got poo pooed somewhere along the way. Somebody said something that was probably crap, and it got passed around. Here's my opinion, yeah. and I could be wrong. But probably someone tried to build some stuff mm-hmm. and fucked it up because mm-hmm. they don't know what they're doing and then decided that it was 500's fault, not their fault. Sure. And somehow, and some people who did the same thing agreed. Probably. And, <laughs> and then it became a thing where a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing tried to build some 500 series gear mm-hmm. and blamed it on the gear instead of pilot error. Um, Entirely that's just that's that's my take on it because, and here's why: um, when you get a good 500 series rack with really good 500 series gear made by people who know what they're doing, mm-hmm. you don't have the kinds of problems that they said they were having, like all these power issues and noise issues, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't get that. Nope. Like if you have a 500 rack and there's a bunch of API stuff in there, it will generally work perfectly fine and sound perfectly fine and you won't have all those problems um you know will there be a defective unit at some point in time yes maybe possibly of course but uh to the degree that they were saying absolutely not diy stuff however if you pull if you put a 500 rack filled with stuff you made in your garage and you're not that good well hey of course it's gonna break uh, certainly possible. I mean, nobody would poo-poo like you know a, a, an API sixteen oh four or like the whole desk or something. Not not the new one, the old one. Like a, you know, nobody would poo-poo the sixteen oh four. Oh, the sixteen oh four can't sound good, which you know, it, it's the exact same thing. Just with a diff, you know, it's, it's all the same edge connectors and up and down sixteen. There's not there's nothing different about that versus a five hundred series rack. It even has it has a five hundred bucket right in the back of it. It, you know, up before the meter bridge. So, like, n- nobody would poo-poo that. Why are you poo-pooing the 500 format? Are you saying API console, a- API couldn't make a console that sounded any good because of the way it was arranged? That's ridiculous. I, I think I'm right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think I'm right. I think uh, that's what it was. Certainly could be. Well, look, I never heard about 500 series being shit mm-hmm. until the DIY thing got really popular a few years ago. Right, yeah. That's, so yeah. if it was really shit, I think a lot of really uh, 
really um, well-known engineers with opinions that matter who know what they're talking about would have already told us that 500 is shit because right. it's been around quite a while. Yeah. And um, the other thing is the guys I know who have who know what they're doing and some of them build gears, some don't, but who've got 500 racks haven't sold theirs off. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's my other my other hint. Yeah, no, that's it's not a fad. It's uh, you know the, there's there really is nothing to the format when you really get it's just a, a sort of standard way of powering and getting you know audio in and off of in a one channel format. There's nothing really involved with the, the format at all. All it is is standardized, which is the reason why it, you know it caught on and became a thing. Um, so yeah, I think we we all know what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> so. Do you ever have any aspirations of uh, mass producing your products, like the latte or yeah, or uh, any anything well, that you make? It, it's you you have to um, get a, a little choosy about you know what the words mean or whatever you know to, uh, mass producing or whatever. I mean, you have to. I think the um, the ADAT OF, the Blackface ADAT, was the highest selling piece of pro audio gear in the business, in the business's history. There were like 110,000 110, of them sold. Um, That's impressive. Yeah, it is. Um, th- this business is is pretty small. Yeah, it's getting bigger with, you know, the advent, the advent of home recording and having sort of everybody and their mom and buying gear is, has sort of bumped it up but not not to the degree that you'd really think it, it still really is a and small not, business. not for the high not for the high-end stuff yeah it's certainly not for high-end so yeah i mean am i gonna sell like you know ten thousand lattes or something no the answer is no there's just not enough people out there that what's going to make sense for and who are well at that price point you know so that means you would need to change your price point which means you would probably need to drop the quality some it, it means you would have to manufacture in china which is something i don't do i manufacture Right here, where I'm sitting, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes at Nicole's bench too. It depends on what's going on, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it it's it, manufacturing in other places is not something that I, I I'm not going to rule it out, but it's not something that really appeals to me that much. Um, there's a there's a I mean it, you could write a book on. Uh, you know, uh, the entrepreneur that comes up with an idea for a product and then begins to manufacture it in China, and then uh, that idea is stolen and passed off to another assembly house and sold to someone else in some other country. I mean, that it's just it's endless. Um, so it, it's a it's a thing that I don't really I, I enjoy doing. So like uh, you know, this all just makes sense for me the way that it is. It make, makes sense. Um, all right. So speaking of mass market. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the flooding of the market with lower quality equipment and the importance of seeking out high quality gear? Uh, I kind of feel like sometimes people compromise quality for cost and then they wonder why, why their results aren't, you know, aren't great. And I mean, one, let me just give the disclaimer that I do believe that you can make great records on, less than great gear if you know what you're doing. You can. If you know what you're doing, you can make anything work. But a lot of guys will end up buying like some really budget garbage and then not understand why their raw tracks don't have this. They're just not that good and 
Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts about that? I, I think that the statements you've made are largely true. I, I, I don't think that... I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that you can make a great record with anything. That, that's... Uh, you know, fair, they, fair enough. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. like there, there's some situations where you're just going to have not enough stuff or stuff that is just it, it can only get so good. So everybody has a different sort of opinion about what's good or not. Yeah. But within well, reason, with, yeah. Like, within reason, yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes the gear is a limiting factor. Um, people not taking res- responsibility for their purchasing decisions is like guess what you're saying. You know, like I bought, I bought these. You know, I spent three hundred dollars on. On, on 24 preamps and how come my record doesn't sound like you know, Journey Escape or something um, it, <laughs> perfect it, example it, um, I, it, I, I, I don't know what to say to those guys I mean there is a point where you on the curve where you sort of do get what you pay for down near the bottom um I, I don't know. I think that, you know, like the, we were talking about earlier with the, the advent of home recording and things getting smaller and cheaper and everybody sort of moving into their house to save money is I think that uh, manufacturing companies saw that as a as a great big opportunity. They got a great big boner and were like, hey, we're just going to, we you know, we're going to hundred dollar our way to a better future um, with, with all these people that are willing to buy stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff out there that's sort of catered to those to that kind of thing. And, and for, for a lot of those people having one knob that says level and one XLR on the back that, that will take their microphone or whatever. And, and they turn the knob and the sound comes up and that's just enough for them. And for people, um, that are doing, uh, voiceovers for, for, for low quality output, uh, like, a you know, elevator music or something like there are all sorts of situations where you need you, where, uh, high resolution audio is not important. It's just you need to have. Can you record sound at home? Does it make noise? Does it sound like speech? Okay, great. Then we're done. It just doesn't matter. So there's there are other markets out there, you know, rather than quality audio. There, you know, audio is involved in all over the place now. Even your gas pumps are blaring audio at you when you're trying to pump gas. So there's there's a, a lot of shit out there um, that is in need of basic services that don't need to be very good. So. I mean, even you know, in my own situation. Uh, where I try to do things as high quality as I can, like say with recording drums, uh, if I was to build a studio now mm-hmm. and I had a limited budget mm-hmm. and say I was doing 32 ins, uh, I would get 24 high quality preamps um, with different different makes and models, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'd get 24 awesome ones and then I'd get an Octopri. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'd get the Octopri is because those final channels for me are always trigger splats, things like that, trigger splats and talk back and right. throwaway tracks. Yeah, there, and there, there's always there's, situations where utility yeah. is just, it's really, it is really good enough. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly that, utility. And so in that situation, I don't see why I need to pay top dollar for eight channels of great preamps in for the utility tracks. It's pointless. You don't. But am I going to run my overheads through that? Hell no. Um, and I, I would be hard-pressed to run anything I plan on keeping through that. Yeah. But if that become if my if I was to buy four Octopries 
for my 32 ins and then try to record drums through that. Right. And then people suddenly start saying, what's happened to your drum tracks? I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Probably, probably not. I, I've not had any hands-on experience with the Octopree, but the, the feedback that I've gotten has not been very positive. So I, I, I don't know. I, maybe you could get away with it and have it be okay. It's not that great. Uh-huh. But I mean, it's what, what do people expect, right? It's super budget and it's not, it's not supposed to be that great, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, if, I mean, if you're using it for anything other than utility tracks, you can expect that your tracks won't sound that great, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, when you're buying a piece of gear like that, if you if it's for utility purposes, the thing that you're interested in it doing is continuing to work. You, you want to spend three hundred dollars on this, and then you do not want to spend any more additional money or time thinking about it. You just want to have the thing function forever. Correct. Um, and then there you can, you know, then there are question marks about whether, you know, is it going to last forever? Is it, you know, is it going to burn up in a year and then I get screwed? Yeah, so there's there's always that, too. Yes, there is that. I didn't even think about that. But I guess I had one for years and it never blew up on me, so. Yeah. I, you know, uh, with the Chinese manufacturing thing, I mean, this is a whole, this is a whole podcast unto itself. But, you know, the one thing um, that happens when you manufacture things at a, a big company in one of the provinces in China is that um, in a lot of cases, these factories have very, very poor quality control, but they have very good manufacturing methods. So you can manufacture something and you can get, you know, maybe six out of 10 of the ones that are made are perfect. And then four of them don't function at all. And they, sh- they all ship that way. And six of them it w- will work f- probably forever. And four of them don't even work when you open the box up. So, um, is it really that crazy oh, of a percentage, though? 40, 40% shipped or garbage? Depends on, on what you're discussing. I mean, like my, a Chinese microphone capsules, for example, you can get 10 of them off the line, and first 10 look immaculate, and the next 10 look like, you know, somebody put a snare drum on wrong or something, you know, like with the, they're all rake <laughs> buckled up and stuff. It, you know, it just, it, I'm saying, not, I'm not singling out one factory over there. Like, in general, the, the, the trend is is that they have kind of poor quality control, but they've they sort of worked on trying to fix that too. Wow, I didn't. I just didn't realize that it was that extreme. Oh, it can of be a d- difference. I mean, I thought I figured it would be more like one out of ten. It depends on up. it depends on no. Well, it, it depends on how complicated the 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 procedure is. Like something like a, a microphone capsule is a. It doesn't take an enormous number of steps to manufacture a microphone capsule. To manufacture a printed circuit board with with two thousand components on it or something, that's a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive. So there's there. Testing procedures that happen in house before things get shipped or whatever, so the the the, uh, the rates go way up. So, are, are you thinking that may, your main reason for not wanting to go that route is the quality control? If like it, they got it together over the next ten years, would you consider going that route? No, more? That, that's just one thing. The other thing is stolen okay. ideas. With I mean, as soon as you send your your intellectual property over there, you basically have just written it off. Yeah, and you take your intellectual property seriously, which you should. So, uh, I, I, some of it, yeah, there, some of it is is inconsequential, but some of it's very important. Yeah. So, can we talk about some of the obstacles that you faced when starting your own audio company? Sure. How you overcame them? Because yeah. uh, you know, just for the people listening who maybe want to start their own audio company, or yeah. I'm sure that some of the obstacles you faced apply even to people who don't want to start their own uh, audio company, just how you overcame them. 
and people who want to start their own company, period. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Get yourself a tax professional, step one. That How early on did you do that? Uh, not until six years in, which was, which was six years too late. Uh, let me tell you that uh, with our company, this one that you're talking to, mm-hmm. we uh, luckily my business partners, um, Joel and Joey, they uh, have other companies. This isn't their first company, mm-hmm. um, and they already knew about this. So we've been we've been pretty serious about doing it right v- with the IRS from the beginning. Yeah. And man, with the way it's grown this past year, yeah. if we haven't if we hadn't done that, be we'd be in, a, yeah. be in a world of pain. I mean, it's <laughs> pain right now. Writing the checks are the pain, and they hurt, but they don't hurt the way they could hurt. It's so true. you got one six years too late. Yeah. Um, but hey, at least you got one. Yeah, there's. It's not just the IRS too. I mean, there there are lots of like here here doing business in California. There's lots of tax entities that you have to deal with. There's the Franchise Tax Board and the Board of Equalization, and also the IRS. There there's a lot of, uh, you know, that you can, you can trip through all this stuff. You can just you know learn by making mistakes and doing, it, and that's how I learn. It's kind of the hard way. Um, I don't know if it's better or worse or whatever, but like especially when it comes to dealing with the IRS, they really do not play. If you if they get an inkling that you're that you're not being forthcoming with them, they will really come after you hard. Um, and and there's no there's no appeal, you know. There, there's nothing there's nothing you can really do that's going to help your situation. I mean, some sometimes some Congress members have some sway over some things that happen uh, with the IRS. But I mean, once once you have an issue with them, the the issue is going to get resolved, you know, one way or another. They'll just start taking your money automatically, even money that you don't have. So. It's uh, um, a. Yeah, there's there's only there's only one way out. Yeah, and it's the way that they say is okay. Yeah, the, I mean, I suppose you could like fake your death or something like that, but that's that's <laughs> the, the the percentage of of uh, you know, people that have successfully done that is nearly zero. Um, All right, it, so get a so get a good tax professional good right tax. up front. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I, we have been very lucky. I haven't had too many problems, even waiting that long. But yeah, just just do it. If you're going to start a company, make sure you get get somebody who really knows the tax code on your side, or or pay them to be on your side, and uh, proceed that way because you you do not want to learn. There's certain organizations that you don't want to learn by by bad example. So, what are some of the other things that you think people starting a company should just hmm. get together right away? Um, all the stuff you probably don't want to deal with that are sort of utility things like um, like P- PR in whatever form it takes, like whether you're doing advertising or you know having down to simple stuff like having business cards made up. Um, just all, all the stuff that you need to interact with uh, other businesses or people that you may meet. It, it's something that even I struggle with to this day. It's just, it, it's, it's all stuff that I'm not into. Like I build gear, like I'm, I'm not a schmoozer and I'm not uh, an advertiser in any <laughs> sense of the word. <laughs> so um, getting uh, all the utility stuff up and running before you hit the ground running so that you're not sort of having to screw with that stuff later on, I think is important. Um, Let me add to that. And I'll say that, look, I know that a lot of you guys listening are not into marketing or PR. And 
one of the things that makes me lucky is that I naturally am. Mm -hmm. And it, same with my business partners. We're fortunate that that's something that we're just into. Mm -hmm. So we've learned a lot about it on our own to get better at it because we're just naturally interested in it. There's a lot of negative stigma attached to it. A lot of guys in the music industry or in engine audio don't like it because they don't want to feel like a used car salesman or yeah. they, they feel like it's kind of dirty. They, it's just a weird stigma attached to it. And I get it. I understand. I feel your pain. But the, the quicker that you can get over it, the better, because your products will not sell themselves. And actually, a lot of a lot of the leading thinkers from like Silicon Valley, for instance, I've heard that people say that you should spend as much time working on the marketing of something as you did building it. Now, that might not be realistic for a lot of people listening, yeah. but you should at least take that to, to mind and to heart that the people out there who are selling billions of dollars worth of stuff are saying marketing is almost, if not as important as the product itself. And, you know, it hurts to think about that because we put so much of ourselves into what we make. Yeah. But uh, you really should think about that. Uh, and I don't think it's an accident that my company's grown as fast as it has. I mean, I think our products are great, but I think that us being good at marketing mm -hmm. is another part of it. And we also hired someone who's really great at marketing to help us just with that. Yeah. So that, that's in the, addition to us being good at it, we brought someone in. Yeah, that's that's the the part I was going to chime in with. Is if you happen to not be good at this kind of stuff, then just get you know get somebody on your team that is because it's 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 extremely important. I mean, being that you're not into it, what have you done to get around that? Um, I had a team of dealers. That's just um, in the particular field that I'm in. Most people sell through dealers. Um, people who are sort of responsible for carrying a number of brands and, and pimping, for lack of a better term, those brands. Um, and people who are good at customer service, who are able to answer questions, are on the ball and all that kind of stuff. All, all the things that um, a small company like mine are not, don't have the, the resources to deal with. So that, that you know, there are, there are teams of people out there that, that move gear and interact with people and spend time on forums answering people's questions and all that kind of thing. So having, having a, uh, being in sales and having a team of dealers that sell your equipment is, it's, it's pretty important. So you mean a, as a, for instance, like vintage King or something? Yes. As an example. Yeah. Yeah. As an example. Um, cause they actually, I didn't even think about it, but they actually do a really good job of selling to people. And I know that, uh, with in this high end market, uh, sometimes it's hard to get people to go along with things because they need to hear them in real life. And I know that Vintage King, depending, depending, they don't always do this, but sometimes you know you can get them to send you uh, like five different units to demo out, and then you keep the one you want and pay for that one as long as you send the others back, of course. Yeah. But you know they won't always do that with everybody. I think you probably have to have a history with them or something. But, you know, that's that's some pretty extremely good customer service, just doing things like that. And it shows an understanding of the market. And also, like the other thing you said is resources. You need the resources to be able to do that. A dealer like them can do that because they do have the resource to do it. If you don't have the ability to just send off five units, you know, it's understandable. But, yeah, 
partner with people who can do the things you don't want to do. Absolutely. There's, there's no reason not to. I mean, it, you recognize a need for your business or whatever. And, you know, I should be involved in this. I need this. There, you know, there are relationships that you can develop. It doesn't mean that it needs to be part of your, you know, what's inside your cell wall. It just means that you need to have access to these kind of resources and get them to work for you, which is what business relationships are and just and foster them. There's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that that's that's the way business works. That's the idea. You don't you know if it's something that you need, it doesn't need to be you know inside your own body. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's something that you can contract. Well, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs or uh, guys early on in things have a problem with delegation or have a problem with wanting to do everything themselves. Yes, and I think that delegation is one of the smartest things a business owner can do. You can keep, so that, because I imagine if I was a part of JCF, Mm. let's just say that I was like your co-owner, I started JCF with you. Yeah. And if I had to tell, if I was talking to my co-owner, business partner, Josh, about all these things we got to do, we got to market this shit, got to, come up with something badass for next year or whatever. I would rather that you, if you were my partner, I'd rather that we that you do what you're best at. And uh, which, you know, whatever that is, inventing stuff and making stuff. Right. Like, I would want you focused on that rather than taking on all these tasks that you might not be into or might not be great at. So sure. I'll take those on. Or, you know, since I'm not your business partner, um, somebody you know, hire somebody else, but it's important to do that so that you can focus on the things that matter. Yeah. The things that will move the needle. That That's just like, just a sensible use of your time. That's all it is. Like if you, yeah. if you're, if you're good at this stuff, it means it probably means you're pretty efficient at it. So you're making good use of your time. If you are, you know, trying to, you know, sitting there at night with pens and a light table, trying to design yourself a logo or something. And all you want to do is just go home that, that, that's not efficient use of your time. You know, hire yourself a, a design artist or, or a graphic designer or something who's going to do a good job with your your company brand or whatever. Just, God, yeah. it's so it's so funny, man. Like, people put so much time into the main offering. Yeah. And then, like, the core product, and then we'll do stuff like what you just said, not be a graphic designer, and then sit there and try to make a logo. Um, that's why you end up with so many of these audio websites that look like they're from 1996 <laughs> on GeoCities. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So, totally. And I, I have a kitschy love for that kind of stuff, so I would laugh my ass off of the thing. But it, like, it's not. It's just because I like it is not a reason that you should. That you know, that should be the face of your company. You should put your foot forward like that. It should look like GeoCities from 1996. It should not. Okay, I'm saying that officially. I just would think that's really funny if it did. It had I a, mean, a bunch of animated always, gifs. <laughs> yeah, it's always hilarious. I mean, it's funny, but not not so much if if it's you. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're if your company is serious and you're trying to be serious, making people laugh right off out of the gate is probably not a good idea. If, <laughs> yeah, so we have uh, some questions from our audience for you. Oh, cool. That I'd like to uh, that I'd like to ask you. Sure. Um, they're actually stoked that you were coming on. Oh, cool. Um, got some good questions. Um, All righty. Hang on, I'm just bringing them up. They uh, disappeared off my page. <laughs> they, they've all been withdrawn. 
Yeah, everybody was like, nah. Mm-hmm. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. No, here they are. It's just it, my computer's moving at crawl speed. What do you What do you want? A very new MacBook Pro. That's crawling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crawling. Man, you know, <laughs> I feel like compu- my computers will just always crawl because you will everything else around them that you run that you run on them is going to keep on trying to improve so always be skimming right at the edge of the computer's ability to keep up right it's like being promoted to the level of incompetence yeah yeah exactly all right here's our first question sure here's from david fuller uh-huh. which is what separates a really high grade a to d d to a from the prosumer boxes hmm. the a number of things but the first thing that would come to that would sort of strike me is is features um, you, you know, like a, a pro box that that uh, it, that's aimed at a specific task that's sort of purpose built for, say, it's for mix guys or something that are supposed to be capturing a mix off of analog console or something. It's probably not going to have things like you know phantom power and pads and onboard mic pre's and you know that kind of stuff. So, uh, not being featured to death uh, is is one thing. Um, usually, there's like some 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 hints in the build quality that will, you know, if you take the lid off or just look at the lid on the box itself, you know, is it, does it feel like a solid piece of gear? Um, and, it, you know, the, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, you know, something I'm going to take a whole lot more seriously, a linear power supply than a switcher, but that's something that's sort of specific to me. So these are all things, I'm trying to make distinctions between something that, uh, you know, a the average person would be able to identify on a on a piece of gear versus somebody that was that that builds gear for a living would be able to notice. Um, prosumer versus pro. Um, well, more more importantly than making distinctions between them, you know, using it, you have a listen to the thing. There there are situations where prosumer boxes will outperform something that's that's really supposed to be meant for high end. So the first you know the first thing that I would do to it obviously is listen to it. Make sure it's integrated correctly. Make sure it's connected correctly. Make sure you, you make sure you read the goddamn manual, and you're not, you know, <laughs> like you're not doing, you're not re- requesting of this device something that it is not capable of doing. Um, and funny that you say read the manual because I feel like that was in our very first podcast episode. <laughs> we talked about that. Um, yeah. People just don't read these days. No. But that's a great point that, you know, you should actually know what your gear is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You should. And it's there's so much assumption. Assumption is all you have. I mean, if you don't read the manual, you just take the thing out of the box. Well, I'm, here's what it's presenting me with. It's got these buttons and numbers and stuff. And I'm supposed to just, you know, like all of your operational behavior with the device is just drawn from inference rather than. You know, reading what the guy who put it together had to say. I, I recognize that in some cases, especially with you know uh, mass-produced products, that there are manuals that leave a whole lot to be desired, and sometimes features are left out entirely, or you got the wrong manual, or like you know, there's a lot of that shit too. But um, for 
devices that are coming from usually smaller companies or mid-sized companies, that there's going to be some interesting information in there and maybe some insights into how it works. And there's obviously going to be hard numbers uh, that you can read to make sure that, you know, the thing is, it's like a, you know, a minus 10 input or something. And here you are driving plus 24 into it and wondering why it's distorted and there's no sensitivity <laughs> control and like, you know, just dumb shit like that. It's, it is kind of amazing. I, I guess when, when you're listening to converters mm -hmm. against each other, like if you were doing a shootout, what would you be listening for? Is there anything, this is me asking, yeah. like, is there anything in particular that you would be, because I feel like in lots of cases, conversion, um, you know, we're talking about, aside from getting total garbage, we're talking about like stuff that not many people will be able to notice. Mm -hmm. We're talking about like, you know, adding a percentage of quality to the tracks that may be hard for some people to perceive. So are there any dead sure. giveaways? Um, d dead giveaways for... For some, or what's better or what's worse? Yeah, like, uh, let me think for a sec. Well, you know, there's... Yeah, like, here's something that I would do, for example. It's not something I suggest everybody else do. And, you know, you can infer the wrong information from this. But if you're setting up... Um, say you have, like, an analog console, right? And you've, you've got some mix-up there, some, something that you think really sounds great, and you want to print the thing into some digital storage device or whatever, and you, you're trying out three different converters. Here's the situation that comes up a lot. If, um, if, I've, if I've, got, I've got all three of them set up in parallel, the first thing, the very first thing that I'm going to do is that I'm going to monitor the back end of this thing and turn the thing completely wide open and make sure that there isn't audio playing so that nobody dies. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, and listen to what the the you know the what the floor sounds like, and right away you're gonna you're probably gonna figure out if there's any problems. Like one of them is squealing, or um, maybe two of them are squealing because the first one is squealing and is actually passing noise into the second one because you have them connected in parallel. It just things like that. Like, is your is your test setup democratic? I mean, that's that's the that you have to make sure that the test that you're doing is not you know, BS to start with. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that, that, that's a whole separate podcast by itself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, have a listen to the noise floor. I'm going to, um, this is even before you play audio or whatever, uh, calibrate it, make sure that they're, they're doing, e or you have some sort of level playing field between these things, these devices that you have set up. Um, I'm, I'm sort of hand waving here and, um, making a hypothetical situation where you can try three different converters into the same storage mm -hmm. device or something, which is you know not many people have. Uh, the other thing you have to do that that's that's really hypercritical is that you know obviously you have to have a, a monitoring environment and, and some you know gear that's associated with with monitoring that you trust and understand and how to use. Um, but you, if you're evaluating like an A to D for example, you really have to have the ability to monitor. Uh, an analog source before it goes through a conversion process or, or the conversion process that you're try, trying to isolate so that you know what you had to start with before you get on the backside of it. Um, you know, many people in, in the, the modern recording studio don't even have the ability to listen to a sound source before it hits a converter. It's And it's, it's written off as, well, nobody ever gets to hear it, so why should I care? Well, it, it may change your purchasing decisions or change your decisions about what you think is good and what gear that 
you think should go in the chain if you if you were able to you know here's a snare, snare drum whack 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 how many people actually assign that to you know some some analog monitor control turn the thing up and listen to the thing before it goes into a workstation almost nobody it's it's very rare that that even happens so you um switching back to our our more common example of i have a mix and i'm going to print it or mm-hmm. whatever you know, you you, you want to have the ability to listen uh at least as you know highest resolution you can get whatever form that takes with your monitoring you have to be, listen to what went in and you have to listen to what's coming out and also understand that since you're going into the digital domain you have to come back out and you are subject to the back end monitoring as well so it's you know, you're evaluating a lot of things at once um, and having the ability to monitor the front side of it is going to increase your understanding of what you had to start with so that you can make the correct comparisons. I, I think that a, a lot of people try to make their comparisons based off of written descriptions, I, which <laughs> I think is really dumb. I think, but I'm I think a lot of people <laughs> make, make their decisions based upon consensus or things that they read yeah. on gear slots. Yeah, so stupid. Um, yeah. All right, here's one from Diamond Jeff Collier, which is, if I wanted to become a designer or a builder, where should I start? Mm-hmm. I'm already taking basic electronics courses, but don't know where to go after the fundamentals. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, you know, the it just the the way that the the studio um, business used to run, it's the same sort of tutelage thing. You know, like you used to get a job at a studio and learn from people who were doing it already, and get internships and and be around it all the time, that kind of thing. I I was lucky enough to have fallen into that kind of situation. I, I could suggest that you may not find it you may not it may not be available to you um, and it's obviously a shrinking world and there are you know not a lot of guys out there that really know this stuff backwards and forwards which you hopefully will be able to involve yourself with um, if, if that stuff doesn't pan out I guess that I would have to say you know classic learning institutions like like you're taking basic electronics well what does that mean are you taking a course at a college or do you you know maybe some people maybe your teacher has some ideas about um continued education after that um online stuff uh i i actually have considered in uh considered opening a school for this very thing for for exactly for guys in his situation because i i realize there's not a lot of um sort of focused instruction um, meaning like if you're you know you're into gear for audio there's not a lot of like you know there isn't a lot of schools or places you can go that are you're going to learn about electronics specifically from an audio perspective maybe there's something there for us to talk about if you're thinking about educating people i i have been thinking about it for a long time it's 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 something i think that could be really great um because there there are there is a little bit of a gap between learning about electronics in a book and learning how to do a good job with electronics for audio. There, There's a lot of missing sort of hand-me-down knowledge that is um, that you could sort of only get from the, the old-timers who were doing it already kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's a thing. I hear you. Um, like I said, if you're if you're in formal education, talk to the people who are heading up the formal education for you. Maybe they have some ideas about other things and other topics that you could cover, other courses that you could take, so forth. Um, and also from from the sort of studio end of things, if you live in a big city, go get a job in the tech shop of any 
any studio that you can get somebody to see if you can get somebody to take you under their wing. That's about all I could offer. I, re- I recognize there's not a lot out there. I think that was a great answer. And uh, making a note to myself to uh, hit you up later about educational stuff because yeah, could have an opportunity there. Sure. Um, so Andrew Simmons is wondering, do you think that a basic understanding of electronic building slash design is someone that working in a studio should have? Hmm. That's a good question. That's a really good question. It uh, is. I've never even thought about that. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly can't hurt. Um, there's no situation where somebody with a basic understanding of electronics is going to be sort of, um, is going to have less credibility than than you know than, than it not being the case. So yeah, I, I think it's important. I think that um, a if you're looking for an, a specific area to sort of be um, a thing, a, a topic to get into that is really going to pay off practically speaking, um, it's interconnect. You know, knowing how to build cables, knowing how different types of output circuits and different types of input circuits work work with each other and knowing how to cable and, and, and patch base and that kind of thing. That, that's all stuff that is, you know, it is never negative having an understanding of how that stuff works ever. And I can back you up by saying that, um, me as an engineer, um, audio engineer, I barely even feel comfortable calling myself an engineer because I don't do that stuff. Yeah. And if there's been one aspect that I've felt insecure about, over my career um, has been about that stuff, yeah. the building stuff, like making cables and all that. Because I, I don't, I never learned how to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, well, I can record the hell out of things. And I think that that's been my saving grace. Mm-hmm. But whenever something would break, so I, it always gave me that, like, that, that pit in the stomach yeah. kind of feeling right. of like, I hope we can find somebody. Or hopefully the guy that I'm working with knows how to do this because I sure as fuck don't. Sure, yeah. And, you know, one of those things, thinking back, if, uh, well, I I never considered audio engineering to be like my main calling in life. Mm -hmm. But if I did, um, I would have definitely learned all that stuff. And I would say that these days, with the market becoming a lot more saturated Mm -hmm. and there being a lot more competition, you always need something to give you an edge. Oh, of course. And that is a fantastic edge to have. It is. Is to know how to fix things when they break. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. That's wonderful stuff to know. Yeah, I mean, I can't really see a situation where that would be a negative. I mean, you could contort the situation into some absurdity. Like, you know, you don't want to get bogged down with that when you, it distracts from you from recording or from your session or whatever. But if something's breaking or broken and the session can't get around it or whatever, and you are able to fix the the situation to get the session back up and running that's money you know that's that that's it, it, it in most cases it's physical money it's somebody's money that's being better spent or or not wasted and that makes you valuable um, for me like when i kind of came out of school um even before i really got into uh, audio electronics for audio professionally i was king shit at synchronization and believe me that was a very very complicated topic with a lot of different uh, digital recorders for tape, workstations, analog tape machines, and having all those things run together in sync that for a period of time during the transition between analog and digital. To if you if you understood all that stuff, you were king shit, and that's kind of where I started with that. 
Okay, here's a question for Nick Matsky, which is, having used entry-level converters for years, and I recently moved to some of the mid-level stuff like RME and Dangerous, I struggle to notice the difference in conversion quality, even in my treated room with good monitors. Mm -hmm. Do you think that to hear the differences in converters as you go higher up the price chain, you need to have really high-end speakers or be running at really high sample rates to know the difference? Also, when you get to the really expensive converters, is it more about imparting some sort of character on the sound rather than just providing clean, flat conversion? Yeah, it, it depends on, on what it is that somebody is selling you or what it is that you expect from the product that you purchased in terms of you know it, it adding something. Um, I, I'm not going to carefully define what it is a conversion should be, it could be a lot of different things. You, you have to know what it is that you're purchasing and take some responsibility for it. Um, it it's not surprising to me that you're not hearing a lot of differences uh, in between uh, entry-level stuff and mid-level stuff. You know, I, I don't... Re First off, I don't really recognize that there's a book, a table that you can look up where, you know, this device manufactured by Dangerous is a mid-level converter or something. I mean, I... I I'm, it, it, that's all a little bit foreign to me, but um, no, it's not shocking to me based upon the devices that you described that you're not hearing differences between them. Um, is it necessary that you have you know expensive speakers or 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 some sort of uh, is it necessary that you run at higher sample rates to hear the difference? Absolutely not. In fact, in uh, that can in some cases be inversely correlated, where the higher you go, you can start to hear more homogeny, especially in the Sigma Delta family, which is most ubiquitous. Um, did I cover everything there? <laughs> Sorry, I got lost. Um, no, it, it, keep going, that's great. There's, yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. What you need um, is a high-resolution monitor chain in order to hear, you, you know, you have to have a monitoring system that is, is something that I, I would qualify as being high-resolution. Um, if, if you can't hear... Uh, differences between A and B, and, and the differences are there, or other people tell you that there, that there are there, there's a possibility that you're simply not hearing them. So is it necessary to have high resolution in order to hear differences between converter types? Yes, it is, because in a lot of cases, they're they're all pretty good. And if you're, if you're monitoring is up to stuff, you're not going to hear anything different. There's also, uh, along the same lines, there's also this weird thing that happens when you get into high resolution monitoring that you're you know, the higher resolution your chain gets or the more sensitive your ears are, the worse a lot of things can begin to sound, and that includes your speaker system. So just having things... So when you're cleaning up your monitoring system, it's not just a question of, like, waiting until everything starts to sound really good to you. Something sounding really good is not an indication that it's high resolution, by the way. Those, those aren't the same thing. In a lot of cases, they're also inversely correlated, where stuff starts to sound worse what you're able to hear further into it. Yeah, like I actually have noticed that with certain monitors that are super high end. Yeah. Things start to sound worse because you can hear more details. Yep. You can hear problems that you couldn't hear on monitors that weren't so detailed. Yeah, they're very, they're, now, is, they're, now, is that better or worse? That's up to you, but they're doing their job. It, it is up to you, and it, it means different things to different people. Some people want monitors that, that make them feel good about life. They, they don't, they're not high-res, but they're fun, and they're able to... You know, like EDM guys. There are lots of EDM guys that, that do... I, I've, I've been on sessions where EDM guys are putting tracks together, and I'm like, I walk in, and I'm like, how... I, I don't even know what my name is on these speakers, and you're able to make stuff that, that is... 
making the ass move on the dance floor. That means you're doing your job. I don't understand it, but good on you. You know. Um, yeah. So so it's a it, it really you know if they when you get into monitoring you're talking about an extension of your ear so it's, things begin to become a little wishy washy. But like I said, the the school of thought that I come from where less is more and the the, the, the more simple you can accomplish tasks, the better you are, better off you are in terms of knowing your ass from your elbow. So uh, you, you got to have a high resolution chain in order to to identify flea forts. I mean that's that's something that's of course true. In a lot of cases. Um, it isn't flea farts then there are real meaningful differences between stuff uh, no it doesn't shock me that you're not hearing them it could be due to X Y and Z you know audio systems are very complicated there there's a lot of moving pieces there's a lot of different types of integration issues you know it, it's a combinatorial process every time you have a p- two pieces of gear you've involved a third object and that is the interface between the two of them so it's compounding if you've got 16 pieces of gear how many different interconnect links do you have are they all, you know, and you're just assuming that they're all blameless when they're not. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Jamie McIntyre is wondering, as someone who's had to work exclu- almost exclusively in the box, I wonder how big is the difference between popular software emulations and their hardware counterparts to someone with extensive experience in pro audio hardware and what goes into it? Yeah. Um I think that the impulse model world that exists out there of plugins emulating a gear, I mean, I don't think many of them are very good. Uh, they, initially, they were all almost uniformly horrible when, it's, when that stuff started. It got better. Um, some of them are very convincing. Is it the same as using the object? Uh, almost by definition, it isn't because... You know, like the joke in the tech world is, you know, like I, you know, I have a broken 1176 and you say, which serial number? Because they're all different. That You know, they went through 10 different design revisions. They're 50 years old. They've been through 15 different techs. It, it's, it, they're all snowflakes. And so the the models, you know, like what, which version did they model? It, you know, so the, no, if you don't know the real thing, you have no idea. And it's, it's, you could also draw a line there and say, that's simply the end of it. If it's a plugin that functions and it, does something for you and it accomplishes the task. There's, I mean, who's going to fault you for using it? If you if you get results with it, great. Um, does it need to sound exactly like the other thing? Well, for the old timers, for people that are used to using those boxes, it's a little bit of an insult when the plugin doesn't hold up, at least to some degree. But you know, I also recognize it. It doesn't have to. It it, it it's it could just be an unfortunate side effect that it looks the same as the old piece of gear. Just use it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um. Okay, this guy has two questions, but one of them I feel like we've already answered. Mm -hmm. So Johnny Ragen is wondering, what do you think of the current mid-price converters on the market? I hear a lot of people saying all converter chips are pretty great now as opposed to maybe five or ten years ago when there was a huge difference between the mid-price stuff and the upper-tier converters. Is that true? No, that's not true at all. Um, The the most ubiquitous... um, a to D converter chipset that that's in use in Pro Audio today is the AK fifty three hundred series, which has been on the market since two thousand and one. There's literally been no change since two thousand and one. Um, D days is a little bit of a different story. There are a couple of new things on the market, especially in the in the last handful of years or whatever. But they they have not really found their way into Pro products very much. So, 
No, I, I don't agree that there hasn't really been much change in the last couple of years versus the, the previous tier. Um, Interesting. There have been new products come out and there have been people that have worked around existing issues with smart smart engineering and sometimes things have been made worse. And one one big issue that exists in the converter world now is heat management. Um, I probably should not get into any specifics here, but uh, th- there are there are some large popular companies out there that are dealing with enormous heat problems now. Yeah, let's not talk trash on any specifics, but uh, yeah. But so they're trying to uh, make the studio less of a raging hot box hellhole. No, they're or they're, just they're, trying to keep their own units from melting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, was, it, it, the struggle is real, <laughs> and it's it's hard to do. I mean, like if you, you're trying to jam six between thirty two and some, like thirty two channels bidirectional in a one rack high box. That's that's you know, or or even a two rack high box. You're, that is a massive engineering challenge. Asking a lot. Yeah. Out of this out of this physical world we live in. Yes, you are. <laughs> so um, here's a question. Final question from a. Uh, Aiden Brock, which is, uh, he's got a few questions, but mm-hmm. we'll end with him. Go for it. What are some good resources or ways to learn about the design of audio hardware? I tried to find some for a university project, but they seem rather scarce. Hmm. Um, all I can say is that the, the internet is a wonderful place now. I mean, you, you can go back through the history of all the popular big companies or you know all the companies w- with which there is lore built around them, put it that way. Um, and, and see what they did. Most of this stuff is public domain. Um, it, it's a mixture of public domain and stuff that is out there that the people who own it have simply not put up a stink about it. So there's a lot of that. And you can you can read into a lot of things by reading uh, schematics and doing Delta, doing comparison between things like here's version one, here's... 1176 is just a, a one example, right? I'll just take some analog compressor it went through 10 design revisions go back and look at all the different design revisions they're all one in one pdf that you can get online what do you notice that's different about them have a look at the you know what changed with time and try to figure out why so basically take responsibility and look and do some research yeah yeah, look online um i you know there i read there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of resources out there that are sort of like instructional you, you got to dig a little bit. I mean, there are some good books out there. Like if you're uh, into power power amplifiers, there's a, a book by G. Randy Sloan about high high powered power amplifier construction. That's a wonderful book. Um, Radio Shack had a whole series of books. There's an a, an ancient Tremaine book called the Audio Encyclopedia, which is something that everybody should know that's interested in being in, in audio tech should have. Uh, it's a little bit hard to find, a little bit of pricey, but they're out there. You can get them on eBay. Um, Ken Pullman's book on digital audio. The, the the old brown one. I'm sorry, I don't remember the title right offhand, but somebody can look it up for me. Um, the, there there are books out there that are very very good. Um, the Art of Electronics is another good one. Yeah, that and the the things that I mentioned in concert with Amazon and and Google should get you very very far today. <laughs> yeah, totally. And start, um, also start keep the library of the stuff too. It's really easy just to you know make a folder. And every time you see something, start sucking it down. Just start saving things. There's, it's you know, you're talking about an inconsequential amount of data to to keep all this stuff. So just build a folder and start looking at things. All right. The second part of his question is, 
What are some areas of outboard equipment design that you believe is seriously lagging behind everything else? Multi-effects boxes. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, they just died. It went, it fell off a cliff in the 90s with plugins. I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it, it just, you know, there's no call for that kind of stuff at all now because, and, and, and I'll get specific here, congratulations to Bercosti for selling the M7 and having it be a great reverb. I think it's a great unit. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I just, I'm very surprised that it has done as well as it is with the, with plugins being what they are and the, the nature of effects being something that's, that's sort of tertiary or, or at least secondary in, in the recording process. They're always something that's sort of added on. And if it isn't the greatest thing in the world, then it's, it's okay, you know? Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm very surprised that people that sell effects boxes have, have managed to do as well they, as they have. Well, I think that's all the time we have for now. But Josh, uh, I feel like there's at least a couple more episodes we could do sure. just off of uh, different things that we said. This is a whole other podcast episode. I, I, but, uh, thank you. Congratulations to you for having the balls to put me on. I don't I don't think that many other balls. institutions would be willing to put me in front of a camera. So that's, thank you. Seems like an obvious choice uh, to have you on. I, I, thanks for I'm 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 game to yak about this whenever you'd like. Yeah, man. Uh, well, I will definitely be asking you again. And uh, thank you for being here. Nice to talk to you again. You too, I haven't man. spoken to you in a while. Yeah. And uh, and thank you. Cool. All right, man. Talk Later. soon. Have Later. a good one. Later. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.